I had nobody to interact with, nobody to, to give me any uh, encouragement or guidance in that area and what to do. And I was really, I guess over the, those three months, it just got to the point where I was becoming more and more depressed. I was asking, you know, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to do it? And I just, I just couldn't bring anything together on it. And I finally thought to myself, you know, let's just do this. Let's just find a place. We'll go and do the best we can and start out in the, in, in the best way we can in, in doing that. And that was, that was probably the low point, and yet the definitive point in which I said, okay, let's start moving in a certain direction. For 2,000 years, Christ has been extending His kingdom through ordinary, faithful people. Their blood, sweat, and tears are the seeds of the global church. The gospel is spreading across the world, saving sinners, renewing nations, and changing everything. But today, many in the modern church are weak, torn, comfortable. The book of Hebrews says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses watching us from heaven, spurring us on. The stories of these faithful Christ followers who've gone before us are what we need to wake up and return to our first love for Christ's mission. Let's learn from them. Welcome to Cloud of Witnesses. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Communications and Media with ABWE. On this week's episode, we learn about the life and ministry of ABWE missionaries Dennis and Rachel Weaver, who served in England for 14 years as church planters. All right, well, I'm Dennis Weaver, and my wife and I, Rachel, started off with ABWE in probably 1992, 93. And we were with the mission through 2007. I was raised in a Christian home. My folks were very active in the Christian work, and uh, I trusted Christ as my Savior uh, before I was 10 years old. Uh, went to, uh, obviously went through school, went to university, got an engineering degree, and also got a wife at that time when I graduated. But uh, rather going into engineering, I went to the Air Force in uh, 1969 and served in the Air Force for 21 years as a pilot. And while we were in the Air Force, uh, and while I was there, we were stationed in England from 1978 to 1982. And we attended a Baptist church that was off the base. It was pastored by an American pastor, obviously. And um, in the time there, I was a, a deacon over a period of time, and then the pastor began to disciple me. And in the past, I'd had the sense that I wanted to go into ministry, didn't know what it would be and how it would turn out. But in the two years that I was there in England with that pastor, he began to show me and disciple me and not doing it on purpose, but through the process of him ministering, uh, showed me what ministry was about and how you got involved with people, uh, the problems that occurred in, in the ministry. And and all through of that, I guess the Spirit just kind of led me to think and, and feel that, you know, when I retire from the service, I would like to go into full-time ministry. Didn't know what it was going to be, uh, whether, it be whether it be a pastor or a missionary or whatever. But um, the last place we were stationed when I was in the service was in New Jersey. Got to know a lot of the ABWE people when we were there and felt the Lord, and my wife and I felt the Lord was leading us into the ministry as missionaries. And 
went to Bible school after I retired for two years. Then we went uh, into the ministry there, and uh, I guess we left in 19, uh, I want to say, 93 to go on to the field uh, in England. With previous experience living in England and serving as an Air Force pilot, moving to a foreign country wasn't a difficult transition for the Weavers. When we arrived on the field, obviously I had come out of uh, Bible school. Um, we went through the process of raising support, which took us uh, several years. But then we hit the field, again, knowing what England was like, but not knowing per se what the church uh, setting was there. And when we got there, two of my colleagues were there already, two, two couples uh, were on the field. But both of these, both of these colleagues, this was their first time. This was their first four years in on the field, so they were kind of new to it. And I was obviously, my wife and I were obviously new to it, and we were trying to sort out what ministry was going to be and what it was going to be like in England. Both of my colleagues were involved in a church restoration, uh, churches that had a small congregation that had drawn down and was had no pastor, but they invited our colleagues to take on that role. Obviously, we could afford being the pastor there. They didn't have to support us in that respect. So when we came there, I, I assisted uh, one of my colleagues in one of our churches, the Tyndale Church, uh, in doing the ministry there. And then he went home on furlough. So about six months into my first time on the field. I am now I'm in charge of a church doing both services and all the other Bible studies and the vacation Bible schools and things of that sort. So that was kind of a shock. That that was like, here you are, you got it, you do it, you know, and, and we were working through that. And then and then about a couple of years when my the colleagues came back, then my other colleague, he went on furlough and asked me to take his church uh, for that one year period. So in the first four years, I was involved in two churches uh, full-time doing the ministry and still wondering where I was going to go and what I was going to do when, when I was on my own. And, and uh, at the end of that four years, I told my colleagues, I said, look, when I come back from furlough, I'm not going to be assisting in the churches because that's, uh, it's, just, it's a ministry, but that's not what I was called to do. I was called to, to plant a church or restore a church. So, they knew that, understood that, and supported me in that area. After four years in England, it was time for Dennis and Rachel to return to the States on furlough. When asked if there was a memorable experience during this time serving in England, Dennis had this to say. When I was there in the first four years, uh, and, and I was in the assisting my colleagues uh, and learning what the ministry was about, the fourth year of our first time, first term there. I had the responsibility of, of the church that we were in, all the pastoral responsibilities that my colleague had you know, basically started. I was just picking them up from what he, he had done. One of the responsibilities he took on was to do the a devotional, a Wednesday devotional at a retirement home. And he would, he would go there for an hour and they would sing some uh, hymns, uh, Christian hymns, as, as best they could. And then he would give a short devotional, and then they have biscuits and tea after that, you know, just gathering socializing. 
So, of course, when he left, I had that responsibility. And I'm thinking, I do not want to do this. This is not what I want to do. I have a morning sermon to prepare. I have an evening sermon to prepare. I have a Wednesday you know, prayer time or group time that we have to prepare. I haven't got time to do something like this. This is not what I want to do. So, you know, I said, all right, gritted my teeth to go out there and do that. And there was uh, usually, every once in a while, one fellow would show up in in that little group that we had. But there was, usually it was all women. And we probably had eight, eight or nine that were there. And because it was every week, you know, uh, and trying to come up with sermons and things, and what do I do in this particular area? So I decided to take the Psalms or a proverb or whatever, and we would discuss that, and I would talk to him about that in 10 or 15 minutes. And then that would be three times out of the month, and then the fourth time, one Wednesday out of the month, I would present the gospel in some form or other. So they knew what it was, knew what it was about, if they were interested in you know, trusting Christ as a Savior, I could talk to him afterwards. But at least they, they heard it once a month. I went through this for a couple of months. And as I was doing that, there was a lady that was in that group that I could tell she was locking on, okay? And I, I got a chance to, I knew them all by name, and her name was Phyllis, and I got to know her a little bit in that area. And then uh, I found out that she, she had cancer, and um, I set up a time that I could meet her or talk to her at her apartment or whatever. And I said, Phyllis, uh, you know, I understand you have cancer and, I, and I'm sorry to hear. It. I know you're getting treated for it or whatever. Uh, is there anything I can do to help you in that area, in the area spiritually? And she said, no, no, I'm, I'm fine. That's not a problem. I said, okay. So she was getting treatment or whatever. And again, went through several sessions and she was still there, still locked on, things that I said. And then she ended up in a, in a, I don't know, hospital, whatever. She was there uh, after uh, some cancer treatment, whatever. And I went and visited her there. Same question, you know, how are you doing? Um, you know, we miss you there. Uh, times you couldn't be there. Uh, is there anything spiritual you want to talk about that we've talked about in the past? Is there no, no, I'm fine. We're okay. About six months after, eight months after I'd been there, I got a call from the lady that ran, uh, was in charge of that, uh, the home in that particular area. She said, Phyllis is in the hospital. She's in intensive care. And um, just thought you need to know. I said, okay, um, do you think it'd be appropriate if I went and visited with her? in that area. And he said, yeah, I think she would, she would like that. And I said, okay. So I went to the hospital. I went in there and sat beside her and it was obvious that, that there, you know, it was near the end, basically. So I said, Phyllis, um, I think it's time now we talk about some spiritual things. Okay. If, if you were to go before God, you know, come up to heaven, and he would say, why should I let you into my heaven? What, what would you say, Phyllis? And she said, well, I, I've done good things. I've been, you know, a good person. I've done, I, I think that I, I've done my life, lived my life, that he would let me into heaven. 
I said, oh, Phyllis, we, you know, we've talked about this before in the, in the sessions we have. We, we said, we, we talked about the fact that that's not going to get us into heaven. And said, so the only thing that we need to do and understand is that, that we're sinners and we need to ask Jesus who died for us if he, would, if he would let us into heaven by us trusting in Him as our Savior and knowing that He takes care of our sins. And I said, would you want to do that? And she said, yeah, okay. So I led her through you know, each kind of step acknowledging the fact that Christ is God and that what He did for us and that we would want to trust Him as our Savior through the forgiveness of sins. And she went through that, you know, I kind of led her in that prayer type thing. You know, at the end of that, I said, now, Phyllis, if you should come, you know, to the gates of heaven and God asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? She said, I don't know. And then she said, but I guess because I trusted Christ as my savior. I said, spot on, Phyllis. That's right. And it was like, that was basically it, you know. I kind of I left I left the area there, and I went out of the hospital. And you you would think, and I would have thought that man, I'd be jumping up for joy. I felt like I'd been through a battle. I felt like there was spiritual warfare in that. I was just absolutely wiped out when I got into the parking lot, and I thought, as far as I know. You know, Phyllis trusted Christ as her Savior. And I got to leave it at that. I can't, I'm not God, I don't know. And I leave it at that. But it was about three hours later, she died. And her son asked me, and I, with the ladies in that group, I think I did three funerals of, the, of three ladies, Phyllis being one of them. And one of the ladies, I'm, I was fairly certain that she was a, a Christian. I know that she wasn't, and again, the way I did a funeral in that respect, if, if I wasn't sure they were saved, I would say, I would go through some things about the person, and I would say, if so-and-so were here, she would want you to know this, and then I would share the gospel. So that it wasn't something in your face, it was just something saying that, and I, it's true, if she were here to say this to you, this is what she would say. and. I talked with her son, and I, uh, they, after the funeral was over, that I did for Phyllis, they went over to um, one of their homes just for the time afterwards. And I talked to her son, I said, you know, I came and visited Phyllis before she died. And he said, yeah, I know. <laughs> she told me. And, uh, To a certain degree, to me, that said, she connected. And I learned from that, I guess, what I did learn was that eh, my going into this whole thing was, I do not want to do this. This is not what I signed up for, you know, is to give little devotionals to people in, in, a, in a home like that. And yet, the Lord was very patient with me and very gracious to lead me down that path and to see and interact with Phyllis. And because of that, I guess I approach things 
that happen in life like that saying, okay, this may not be what I want to do, and I will grit my teeth and quote, do it. And, and again, I'm learning that say, okay, Lord, I'm just going with you. I'll follow you with, with you through this and do that. And I think that, that um, that's one of the lessons I learned. And the lesson I learned too was that you never know when you have an opportunity to share the gospel, you never know what you are saying, how that impacts people. You just have to trust God and working through all of that. So it's the little everyday conversations and relationships that God places us in, giving us opportunity to be faithful to his calling for us to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We can often see these opportunities as burdensome or interruptions or as less important. But Dennis' story is an important reminder for all of us not to miss the subtle chances to pour into the lives of others, even if it's through a short devotional with residents at a nursing home. After Dennis' first four years, during which he spent his time aiding in established churches, Dennis knew his return to England needed to be focused on either starting a church plant or becoming involved in church restoration. When we came back, I started that process of how do you plant a church or how do you get involved in restoring a church? So the first thing I thought I would do is see if there's possibility of restoring a church, if there was something that a church that was available that I could do that. And our folks there were involved with a, a, a group in England called the FIEC, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, a group of a small group of, na- of the churches nationwide that had a mindset in, in the same direction that we had, and we interacted with them. And I talked with one of the pastors there. We were located near Bristol, England. Uh, talked to one of the uh, pastors there of, of a major church there, and a major church in England, an evangelical side is about probably two to three hundred people. And he said he, there was a church that he had on the edge of Bristol that, that uh, they had sent a young man there to, to take on the pastoral duties. It didn't work out with them. Would I be interested in doing that? And I said, sure, I'd like to do that, see what it's like. And uh, uh, it was the first six months after we'd gotten back. And uh, I think it was in November of the year or whatever. I went to the church and talked to the people there. They were interested in it. It probably had, I don't know, maybe 20 people total in the church. Uh, it was on a main street in, in a suburb of Bristol. And I preached there for a couple of sermons, and it was going all right. It was near the Christmas time. I finished up the, the sermon or, or the pastoral duties uh, right before Christmas and was preparing for the time in between Christmas and New Year's. When I got a call from the fellow that was the, the head of the congregation there in the church, and he said, we can't meet. And I said, well, what's the problem? He said, the building's been condemned. And I said, what? And I knew there was a crack in the front of the, of the church. You could see it going from the top of the roof down to the, down to the lower base of the foundation. And he said, they have condemned the building because they're afraid the wall is going to fall out and fall out into the middle of the street. That's why the city has condemned it. So I had the privilege of shutting down a church, you know, in my first couple of ministries, uh, first couple of times that I was there. 
Um, knowing the people and being involved with them, I knew that we couldn't go on from there. There was no place to meet. They were not going to rebuild the church. They were not really that interested in pursuing it, I guess, particularly with, with uh, having an American in there and doing that aspect of it. So, uh, you know, that kind of was a setback. And then I had another opportunity uh, later in the new, that a couple of months later in meeting one of the administrators in the FIEC and talking to him about doing the same thing, of planning a church. And we met in our home and we talked about it and he said, we've got a problem here. And I said, well, what's the problem? We said, well, doctrinally, we're different. And he said, for me to be involved in recommending you to go to a, a, a church restoration, I can't do that from this, this level, basically, uh, because that would violate where we're at theologically. And I understood that. I, that was not a problem I had you know, with, with his logic and all. But again, that was another blow that, that came to me. There's another outlet that I was looking for that just kind of dried up. So what do you do now? You know, here I am. Um, my colleagues have never started a church from scratch in England. I don't know of anybody that has. The, even some of the like-minded uh, mission organizations that had been there that, that were able to do that. So I did the only thing I knew to do, which was not a whole lot, which was to go and look at some of the towns and villages that are around our area to see what was in those villages. So I probably spent two or three months just doing survey work in that area, looking at the size of the location, looking for places you could meet, uh, things of that sort. And it just wasn't coming together. Rachel Weaver shares her perspective. We didn't have a church to go to, to work in, and my husband spent a lot of time just walking in different communities in the Bristol area, as well as some others, uh, talking to pastors of churches, British churches, uh, trying to find out where we might go to do a church plant. We didn't want to step into an area that another church was trying to work. And so it was a time of a lot of indecision and a lot of uh, not knowing what we were gonna do. There were only three couples in England at the time, and the other two each had a church that they were already working in. Uh, I was at a point where I just didn't know where to go. I mean, I just flat out was clueless. I had read some of the works that, that uh, some of the administrators in South America on how to plant a church. And one of the things was you put up a tent and then you have people come. and it, That wouldn't work in England, okay? And I, it was like, what do I do? I mean, there was nothing that I could read, nothing that I could gather from people that I knew. So I was really at just at total bottom of... Uh, only thing I could say was, Lord, what do you want me to do? And it wasn't like a day later I figured it out. I mean, we went through probably two or three or four or five weeks of just same question, same morning, you know, go out and do something like survey a, a town or whatever. And, and just, I, I knew even in doing that, this is, this is not going anywhere. So I was really at, at the end of my rope. I really was just grasping for anything that would come along to help me through it. And, and, and basically, the only thing that kept me going was I felt that the Lord wanted me here. 
I knew that I could not continue just to be an assistant in a, in a, in a, a church plant with my colleagues. There was, a, there was a purpose he had me here for. But I just couldn't see the end where it was going. And I didn't see how I could get there. Oftentimes, in our ambition, we enter into ministry with visions of how we see our role shaping into what God has called us to do. However, it's often through our trials and in the lowest moments when we surrender all to the Lord that he reveals the next step of following his lamp that guides our way. I had nobody to interact with, nobody to, to give me any uh, encouragement or guidance in that area and what to do. And I was really, I guess over the, those three months, it just got to the point where I was becoming more and more depressed. I was asking, you know, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to do it? And I just, I just couldn't bring anything together on it. And I finally thought to myself, you know, let's just do this. Let's just find a place. We'll go and do the best we can and start out in the, in, in the best way we can in, in doing that. And that was, that was probably the low point, and yet the definitive point in which I said, okay, let's start moving in a certain direction. Probably um, after I made that decision, about two or three or four weeks after that, uh, my wife was involved in a pastor's wives meetings with the FIC pastors that we knew in the churches of the FIC in our area. I went to a ladies, a pastor's wives afternoon. We would get together so often. And uh, these were mostly British pastor's wives. And one of them just happened to mention that they were doing a church plant in a new housing area in the town of Swindon. And that they were only going to be, the pastor there at the, what I call the mother church, was only going to be able to work in that church plant for a certain amount of time. So I perked my ears up about that. And it's a town that's about 45 minutes from the Bristol area where we had been working. So it was within the radius of where we felt we could work together. And uh, so Denny began, my husband began the process of making contact with that senior pastor and just to see what the lay of the land was and if we could work together. After experiencing the trials of pursuing an opportunity for a church plant, a door has opened for Dennis and Rachel. However, there's some hurdles that need to be cleared, specifically with theological differences. This proves to be another trial of patience for the weavers who have faith that God will work out the differences or will clearly guide them to another opportunity. I contacted the pastor and I explained to him who we were and the fact that we had contact with uh, and knew one of the larger churches in Bristol with the FIC, et cetera, we had some common ground there. Would he be interested in considering me to, to take on that role as a pastor in that, in that church? So he invited me to, to, to meet with him and to talk about it. And I, you know, I, I, I told him of the differences in our theology, and he knew that. And, and the thing that I, one of the things that I really remember in that meeting is I walked into, into the, uh, his home for that meeting, and his, the pastor's wife was there, and she was quite outspoken, okay? And she said, 
you don't really believe that stuff in theology, do you? I thought, this is going to be a good meeting here. <laughs> so I said, yeah, I do. And he said, okay, well, and then we sat down and, and he talked with me and he was a very gracious man, a very gracious uh, follower of God and a, and, a, and a super pastor. And he had a, an associate pastor there was also, he was getting ready to retire in about four or five years. So we talked through and, he, and we sensed that, yeah, we could, there's a potential that we could work together. But I still had, in my mind, still had the problem to a certain degree of, of the theological differences that we had between them and, and us. We worked it through first as a field council because our colleagues that we were working with, they were not sure how it would work out to go in uh, with a British church. So that, that took a little bit of working and then working through an ABWE then did give us the permission to work with the church as long as my husband could teach and preach what he believed. And the, the British church accepted that. And I guess it was secondary issues, that's what I'm trying to say, that there were a little, few things. And as long as he was able to preach and teach anything that he felt the Lord was leading, then we could work together. Where I was at, there was no way I could see anything like this happening. And yet, out of a meeting that my wife had, you know, with a bunch of pastor's wives, just a comment that was dropped, that was followed up, which God continued to lead in that area. And the other thing that was significant to me uh, in the whole process was that as I was working with this church to set up that church plant where we would meet and the time we would do that, I had another offer from another church that was north of Bristol to do the very same thing. So now I had two churches to choose from, basically, in which to go to. And because of that, um, some of our colleagues that followed on after me in that same four-year period, they were able to go up there because all the groundwork had been laid to do the same thing. As long as we can preach and teach what we believe, they were happy with that. So they started a church up in that area there. So I guess that you just have to hang on. You just have to keep trusting God through those areas. And, and he, obviously he, he, he led us in that direction to move to start those churches, but it came from him. It wasn't from me. After faithfully following the Lord's leading through the seasons of waiting and exploring possible opportunities, the Weavers ended up staying at the new church plant for almost a decade before deciding to retire in 2007. Dennis served as the pastor of the church, and Rachel was involved in women's ministries and in outreach to the community. When we retired from the field in 2007, okay, um, the church was up to about I don't know, uh, we probably had a regular attendance probably between 50 to 100 in the, in the church services. And I left the field uh, without the pastor being called to the church, but I knew that we were there. We financially could afford a, pa and afford a pastor at that time. I knew we were there, but I was coming up to the end of the four years in, in which I was going to go home on furlough. My colleague was there with me, helping me and assisting me with, in, in the church itself. 
So I told my colleague, you go ahead and take the church. You get with the people and call the pastor, okay? Because I don't need to go home on a year and then come back for a year and then, then quit, you know? It didn't make any sense. So I said, you go ahead and continue this out and you call the pastor. Well, they did that and within a year they found uh, a young man that was within the church itself, a member of the church, who the church felt would be or should be the pastor of the church and they, and they called him to do that. So they called me back um, in 2008, I think, or something of that sort uh, along that line that, to be a part of the uh, induction service for this pastor. And um, I did my part on the induction service and then we went to have a meal with uh, one of the people in the congregation, a couple that we knew very well uh, that evening and the pastor that I talked to about doing this and his wife were at that meeting or at that meal. And the interesting thing in the discussion, we were talking and she said, you know what, you're part of us. I thought, what? <laughs> but it was like, there's an affirmation that God gave me through her that we had become part of the whole scene there. I guess that was probably the, the highlight for me, um, even though I wasn't involved in the ministry at that point in time. But the fact that she came to that level with me to say, yeah, you're part of us. And that was just, just fantastic. The Weaver's story serves as an example of patient endurance through the trials and valleys of church planting in another country. Whether it's closing down a church because the building is hazardous, or surveying towns and villages for opportunities only to find yourself at a loss of direction. God is faithful through it all. It's in these valleys we have to remind ourselves of Paul's words in Acts 20, verse 24. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Our call is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And may that be what leads each one of us to the places where God has us planted. Cloud of Witnesses is a production of ABWE. I'm your host, Alex Kochman. Our production director is Grant Boring. Our researcher and interviewer is Jay York. Production support is provided by Tito Estevez. Additional voiceovers by Jason Younger. Get equipped to make disciples and learn more about how you can reach the nations at abwe.org. Cloud of Witnesses is a production of ABWE. ABWE is a global family of ministries reaching more than 80 countries by sharing Christ, planting churches, and training Christian leaders. After nearly 100 years, ABWE is continuing to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You can help us advance the kingdom for the next 100 years and beyond by supporting the mission through the Global Gospel Fund. Learn more at abwe.org forward slash cloud.